Well, our text this morning from Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel lesson, is the third consecutive parable that Jesus has told in this Gospel, dealing in increasing intensity with the fierce conflict between Jesus himself and the Jewish leadership. Now, while it's impossible to avoid referring to that context, I want to look at the parable's general application to us and to our current series on the Eucharist. And so we'll look at this parable under four headings. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Refusal, gathering, judgment, election. So first refusal. We're in Matthew 22. The kingdom is compared here in verse 2 to a king who gave a wedding, banquet, or a feast for his son. So... It is right to see the king as God and to see the son as an image for Christ. And so we have this very important common metaphor for the kingdom. The kingdom is a wedding feast. The kingdom is a sumptuous banquet. The supper fits into the flow, right? The supper fits into the flow of all of the wedding feasting, kingdom imagery in the Bible. And behind that, more basically, is all the tree of life language which we looked at last week. So it's, prop- it's important, right, to situate the supper here. We saw this in our very first sermon in this series. The supper is a feast which points to and anticipates the coming feast of the kingdom. The supper orders us, lifts us up into heaven. And the kingdom's depicted this way. It's depicted as a feast, often in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one example from Isaiah 25. There the prophet speaks of the messianic kingdom. And he says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, And he will swallow up death forever. And when Jesus comes, his own ministry intensifies this theme. Right? He eats and drinks with sinners. One scholar said he eats his way through the Gospels. He speaks in Luke 13 of this great feast to come, which will take place in the resurrection, where we will eat face to face with Jesus. But not just with Jesus, with Jesus himself says, with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob, and with all the prophets, he says. Where? Where will we eat with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets? In the kingdom of God. And not only they will be there, but all the redeemed from every nation. People will come, Jesus says, in that same context, he says, people will come from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, and they will recline at table, where? In the kingdom of God. Right? The gathering of the church with the patriarchs and the prophets at the end of the age, in the resurrection, is a feast. Thus, Jesus institutes the supper as a meal anticipating the final wedding supper of the Lamb. This is perhaps the most important thing about the supper. 
It's a meal which anticipates and begins that meal. He says to his disciples, you'll recall in Luke 22, that they will eat and drink with him in the kingdom of God. So the coming of the kingdom is, as we just sang, joy to the world. It's a feast. And in Jesus' life and in his ministry, the everlasting banquet has now begun. So, in our parable here, the king, he sends his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast. Right? Notice that those who are called to the banquet have previously been invited. It appears there was some sort of double invitation system for weddings in those days. First, you'd send out the invitations. You'd get the acceptance, and that would give you the, roughly the number of people you could prepare for. You'd have to get the right number of animals for slaughter. You'd have to make all the necessary arrangements. Then when everything was ready, you would call the guests again. And it's this second invitation which is going on in verses 3 and 4 in our text. Right? But for our purposes here this morning, we just want to note something simple. A response to the summons of the gospel. Right? A response to the outward proclamation of the word proceeds partaking in the feast. It may not be sufficient, but it is absolutely necessary. It's the minimal standard. So the servants go out. They call the invited guests. But we're told bluntly at the end of verse 3, they refuse to come. Now, in the original context, this is most likely the Israeli, you know, the Israelite leadership which is in view. They're being called, they reject the summons. This is the first stage of refusal. But the king is patient. So he sends out other servants. Right here, here, Jesus is evoking the continual sending of prophets to recalcitrant Israel, culminating in this generation in Jesus himself, and finally in the disciples of Jesus, who would be sent out after the resurrection to preach the gospel beginning at Jerusalem. So the king now speaks with urgency about the glory of the feast. And about its preparation, he says this, Tell them, I've prepared my dinner or my supper or the feast. My oxen and my fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. This is the heart of Jesus' message in culinary form. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's a joyful, universal call. It's what we in the Reformed tradition call the free offer of the gospel. But it's far from compelling to many. You can see this in verse 5. They paid no attention. They're just not interested. They've got stuff to do. Matthew tells us that one went to his field, another went to his business. Right? They're men of action. They're businessmen, they're men of the world, and the urgency of their own lives displaces the urgency of the kingdom. This is a perennial concern for us. The urgency of our own lives displaces the urgency of the kingdom, so they ignore the call to the feast. Remember, these are people who have previously responded to the invitation. 
So it's important to realize the gravity of what's happening in the parable. In that culture, right, meals had much more social significance than they do in our culture. Notions of honor and shame and status, they're bound up with meals. They're bound up with the various protocols of the meal. I remember a friend of mine, he was a a colonel in the army. And he was telling me about his time in Bosnia and how he had to provide security for a mid-sized city, a city of about 70,000 people. Right? The first thing he had to learn was you eat whatever the people put in front of you. You never politely decline. Because to politely decline was an enormous fellowship-breaking act. And it would prohibit him from gathering intelligence. So he told me, look, if I was offered a cigarette, I smoked it. He had to learn to eat sheep's head with the eyes still in the head. Because declining would be an insult. The same is true in the biblical culture of our text. Especially given the fact that the meal is given by the king. And it's his son's wedding on top of it. The supper is an invitation to the wedding of the king's son. So in addition to all these associations, this meal would have political implications as well. Implications about one's allegiance to the king. Right? We've already seen in this series that the supper is a public oath-taking action. And a refusal to attend this meal is a statement that one rejects the marriage. Right? By implication, you're renouncing your allegiance to the king by refusing. Right? So the supper, like this wedding feast in our parable, is a public pledge of allegiance. So it's important to see this as well. The people who don't come here are not just saying, you know, no thanks, I'm a vegetarian. Weddings make me cry. But the people who refuse the invitations... This is not a a minor faux pas, right? This is tantamount to insurrection. You'll see that as the text goes on. You remember Thomas More, the 16th century figure, his quarrel with Henry VIII. He refuses to attend the coronation of Henry's second wife, Anne, and that's one of the reasons that got him executed. Because refusal is treason in these situations. And that refusal here, refusal of the invitation to the king's son's wedding is a form of insurrection is made clear in verse 6. The rest of the people, this means the people that didn't not come, didn't go off to their farms and didn't go off to their business, the rest of them seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So the nature of refusing here is out in the open. right? It's, It's high treason. And it's only when we understand the glorious nature of the feast that we can understand then the treachery of the refusal. And understand what happens next in the text. Look at verse 7. The king was enraged, sent his army, and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now this is a clear allusion to the horrific judgment which befell apostate Israel in 70 AD at the hands of the invading Roman army which burned the temple and large parts of the city. 
Israel is the first invited guest to the kingdom feast, and tragically, they largely, there's a remnant, of course, but they largely refuse. But the story is not over. And that brings us to the second point, the gathering. The feast is not going to be canceled. The feast is not going to be canceled. So the king says, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited were not worthy. So the call now goes out further, beyond the leaders, beyond the rebellious city. Verse 9, go to the street corners. Invite to the banquet anyone you find. Again, this is the free, sincere offer of the gospel to all men. Whoever is hungry may find bread here. Whoever is thirsty is called to come and drink at the king's table. Again, in the first instance, this text is probably referring to the outcasts in Israel. right? To the marginalized, to the tax collectors and prostitutes, the people the leaders despised. The leaders have rejected the call, go get the people on the margins. But in addition, the text envisions, not directly, but it envisions the calling of the Gentiles. In verse 10, the servants, now here the servants are clearly Christian witnesses. They gathered all they found, both bad and good. Right? It's a reference to the mixed character of the church, the people of the kingdom, good and bad. So many respond that the wedding hall, right, not the actual banquet yet, but the wedding hall, is full of guests. Right? The kingdom, the visible church, is a process of gathering good and bad, wheat and tares, with the separation coming at the end. And that brings me to the third point here, the judgment. So verse 11. Now this is, again, a clear reference to the final judgment. The king comes in, the text says, notice this, to see the guests. But the Greek word is, he comes in to inspect the guests. Right? This is the inspection before the banquet, before the one from whom nothing is hidden, before the one whose eyes of flaming fire penetrate our innermost secrets. This is the coming day in which our works are revealed. The king is guarding the eschatological table. He does the same thing here in this wedding hall. This wedding hall of good and bad through his ministers. He inspects rigorously before he admits to the banquet. What happens at the end is imitated in what happens here. That's the basic principle. So the king comes in. And he sees a man without proper wedding clothes on. Meaning without a clean and probably a white garment. Now, I must say, I have a certain sympathy for this poor man. I think I may have told this story here before. Of a time before Cheryl and I were even dating. We were friends. And we both ended up at the wedding of a mutual friend. So I was, I don't know, 22 years old. And being a single guy, I showed up with jeans and like a flannel shirt and some, probably some ragged jacket or something. Cheryl happened to be sitting behind me in the church. And she taps me on the shoulder and says, what are you thinking? 
You've never read that parable about the guy who gets kicked out of the wedding? <laughs> In any event, um, to not have a wedding gar- garment on here is more, a little more serious than what I did. Um, Right? But, so a refusal in this context would be a sign of great disrespect to the king. So the fundamental point of this man is he's responded to the gospel in some way. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in there. He's been invited. He's responded to the invite. We're about to have the eschatological banquet. He's not ready. The king inspects him and says, what are you doing? Where's your garment? He has faith, but he doesn't have works. He has some sort of bare confession. He could probably pass a membership interview. What he doesn't have is self-examination and repentance. Right? We saw in Revelation 19, right, the final wedding supper of the Lamb, it was read, right, that this, this parable is a picture of that. The bride makes herself ready with fine linen, white and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the garment here is not simply a reference to our legal acquittal, although it is that. The garment also includes a life of righteous action. We saw this last week. Remember, Revelation 22, right at the end of the, at the, at the, end of the Bible. If you want to gain a right to access the tree of life and the city of God you have to have a white garment on. So again, this is not you know, a trivial fashion oversight. This is an act of great presumption by this man, and it's inexcusable, as verse 12 indicates. He's asked by the king, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And he's speechless. He knows he's a fraudulent disciple. Nothing but guilty silence. So the king has him bound. Now this might seem to us like an overreaction. Cast into outer darkness. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The standard gospel image for the anguish and regret of everlasting punishment. So that's the parable. And that brings us to the final point. Election. In verse 14, the king speaking for God says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, the way Jesus tells his parables, right, is he'll tell you the whole parable, and often at the end, he will give you in one sentence the main point. Right? It's like, here's the point. Boom. Now, I would suggest... If we did not have the sentence, many are called, few are chosen at the end, we would not think this parable had anything to do with that. We would think the parable was about many are called, and the vast majority are chosen, and occasionally there's a man like this guy. Jesus thinks that guy represents the many. That's the shock of the parable. It's a strange ending. Many are called, few are chosen? Why isn't it many are called, the vast majority are chosen? Because this man represents all of us, and Jesus is trying to warn us. 
Israel had been presumptuous about its election. Many were in the covenant. Few were actually saved. And we saw this in the sermons on John 6, on the bread of life. Right? That Jesus is at war with this, I'm in the covenant, all is well mindset. It is Jesus who insists on speaking of election in the context of feasting on him. He does it over and over again. So the text is a warning, right? It's a sober, embracing warning for us Christians as well. We have lately been invited to the feast. And Jesus is saying to us, don't commit the same treachery that Israel committed. Simply being in the church and being in the wedding hall will not save us. We can be just as preoccupied with our farms and our businesses and our private affairs as they were. So this is a text about election that us Calvinists desperately need to hear. Not all Israel belongs to Israel. Not all baptized Christians belong savingly to Christ. Many, Jesus says, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we do this? And didn't we do that? And didn't we do this? And I will say, I never knew. Many are called. This refers not to the internal call of the Spirit, but to the outward call of the gospel. The call goes out to many. The gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. Many are called. Many in Israel and many later through the church hear the call. But few are chosen. Few are elect. Now, election is rooted in the secret counsel of God, but that's not the focus here. Here, people's actions show forth whether they are elect or not. To put it, to summarize, to condense it, election is shown in the type of garment you have on. Election is shown in the kind of garment you're wearing. Election bears visible fruits in the elect, in the way of the gospel. No matter how much you stumble or falter, if you cling to Christ and the ordinary means of grace... You can confirm and be assured of your election. Our confessions are clear about that. But like Israel, we must forsake presumption and distraction. Right? The two great threats to showing up without the right garment on are presumption and distraction. While there are things, farms, businesses, that we must be occupied with. Let us not be preoccupied with them. And there's a big difference between being occupied with one's worldly affairs and being preoccupied with them. So the text is an invitation. It is. But it reminds us there's an inspection before the actual sitting down to eat. So here's the word of the Lord to us from this text, I believe. Clothe yourselves in Christ. This is what Paul is saying. Put this clothing on. Clothe yourselves in Christ. Put on the new man. Lay aside the old. Put on the new. Wash your garments in his blood. And then make them white with good deeds. You have a joyful wedding feast to attend. Do not fail the inspection in the wedding hall. Amen.